Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today I'm very excited to share with you my global macroeconomic framework. Now, in my decade plus of rates research and analysis, I have learned that there are at least 100 moving parts that are affecting global markets at all times. And while it's impossible to explain every single driver of interest rates and asset prices, today I'm going to break down for you some of the most important things that I watch and show you in a series of charts how important it is to understand the relationships between macroeconomic indicators as well as financial markets. So let's dive right in. Today's video is sponsored by River. The Bitcoin layer is so excited to be sponsored by River and partnered up with this amazing Bitcoin only exchange. Make sure you guys go check out river.com slash TBL. There's a special offer for you if you go to that link. And understand that River does not keep your Bitcoin on a third-party custodian. River has a multi-signature storage solution so that your Bitcoin, when you purchase it through River, they're not being held by another company. And not to mention, River encourages you to get your Bitcoin off of the exchange as soon as you can. And what better way than to use Lightning Network? So make sure you go check out river.com slash TBL today. Okay, I have the yield curve, treasuries, CPI, ISM, and several other economic indicators lined up for you guys, as well as some returns. So let's go through one by one these charts and try to put together this framework. Now, the first thing I want to explain to you guys is what I'm trying to do here with these charts. I have a bunch of economic indicators and market indicators throughout these charts, but what I try to do here is show you one relationship at a time. And if you can understand that each one of these components is related to another, then over the series of charts, you can see really how all these economic indicators are related showing you one relationship at a time. So that's the setup and let's start with the yield curve. Now you guys are familiar that inverted yield curves precede recessions, but let's show you a little bit more specifically what we're talking about during the current cycle, why it's different and what is so interesting about it. So let's look at these three steepenings of the yield curve and show you why this one is different than the previous two. Now, I have these three blue arrows here. This is showing a yield curve that is steepening after an inversion. So what is an inversion? An inversion is when the 10-year yield falls below the two-year yield. Why would something like that happen? That would happen when growth and inflation expectations over the 10-year time horizon fall below where the expected policy rate is over a two-year time horizon. So what we see here is that prior to the 2001 recession and tech bubble bursting, you had the 10-year yield fall, fall below the two-year yield. And then you see this dramatic re-steepening of the curve as you go into the recession. Now, the previous two steepenings off of the back of an inversion have been bull steepenings. And I will explain that in a second here with the next chart. 
But what you have to understand here is that in the previous two cycles, when the steepening has happened, it has happened because two-year yields are falling. That is not what is happening right now. But let's show you now what is going on in the current steepening. We have the yield curve that was deeply inverted and now it's steepening, but it's different than the previous two. And I'm gonna show you why with this next chart. Okay, we have a bunch more going on in this chart, but let's break it down for you. The purple line that we've added here is the 10-year yield by itself. And the orange and black is, again, our twos, tens. This is the two-year, 10-year yield curve. So I have these blue arrows now more pronounced on the chart, each one of these steepenings. So you see the first two steepenings here in during the 01 recession as well as the 08 recession. And now the current steepening as well. But look at the 10-year yield during each one of those re-steepening. So let's go back to the first tech bubble one. We see the 10-year yield falling. Okay? That is a bull steepening. Bull meaning that treasuries are advancing in price as yields decline. And if you look at the 07-08 steepening of the yield curve, once again, we have these red arrows showing you a decline in yields during those times. And a decline in yield going into recession would make sense. Why? Because growth and inflation expectations are falling during a recession. So we would expect 10-year yields to fall during a recession. And we see that the curve steepens out during those times. Now, what's going on right now? The yield curve is steepening, but where's this red arrow? Where are falling yields? They're not there. And it's the opposite. Yields are increasing. Now, are we going into a recession here? We believe, yes, going into 2024, that we're heading into a recession. But why aren't yields falling as the curve is steepening? Well, that's the question that we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to present some answers for you today. But do it in the context of a macroeconomic framework and how to approach all of these things as they're happening at the same time. Okay, let's start with a macroeconomic indicator that we take from markets to show you how what you think drives yields might not be the only thing, right? You might think that growth and inflation expectations are what is driving yields. You might also think that the U.S. fiscal situation is what's driving yields. But I'm here to show you that it's not just one thing, right? It's actually many, many things at the same time. So here on this chart, I have the 10-year yield in orange, and I have the ratio of oil to gold in black. This is the oil-gold ratio, basically looking at oil divided by the, the price of one barrel of oil divided by the price of one ounce of gold. Now, what does this oil-gold ratio tell you? Well, if we think about oil being consumed from an economic perspective, when would we be consuming oil? When the economy is doing well and we need energy input for all the production that we're doing. When would the economy want to put a premium on gold? Well, think about when we're not using oil as much, the price of oil falls. In those scenarios, we're using gold as a store of value instead of using oil as an energy commodity. 
So you can think of the oil-gold ratio as some sort of economic indicator in that when the price of oil rises relative to gold, the economy is probably doing well because we need energy input. And when this ratio is falling, it means the economy is probably going into more of a conservative mode. Let's buy gold instead of oil as we would prefer to just sit on our wealth instead of invest it. So look at this chart now and tell me why the oil-gold ratio is related to the treasury yield in the 10-year part of the curve. Well, it really comes down to this risk appetite. If we are willing to take risk, it means that we want to sell our treasuries and buy risky things. If we are buying risky things and we're a producer, maybe we are investing in production instead of buying gold from a conservative standpoint. So we can see that throughout many times over the last 20 years or so, the relationship between the oil-gold ratio and 10-year yields is very, very strong. Now, in the past couple years, we've seen the yield on 10s rise much higher than this ratio has. And so we can maybe understand that the yield has gone a little bit too far or that the oil price is undervalued here relative to gold as the investment from the economy, from the world, into oil production and into oil as an input for other sorts of production. It might be cheaply valued here. So our bias here is to is to show you that yields are probably higher than where this ratio suggests, but oil-gold ratio is not at the core of our economic framework. Rather, it's something I wanted to show you at the beginning to try to shake you out of your investment framework and to show you that what you think drives yields might not be the only thing driving yields. So let's go to the next chart. Okay, tens versus the consumer price index. This is something that I want to show you again, a relationship here that maybe you are familiar with. Now, think about inflation and a fixed income security of 10 years. If inflation is 3% and the fixed income security is offering you 5% for 10 years, you might be willing to make that investment because the fixed income security is compensating you above and beyond what the current inflation is. Now, if your inflation outlook for the next 10 years is also around 3%, it would make a 5% fixed income security a good investment. Think about the flip side of that then. If inflation is about 5% and your fixed income security is only offering you 2% over a 10-year horizon, are you going to be willing to make that investment? Probably not, and you're probably going to want to sell that fixed income investment until it goes to a yield that's high enough that you feel compensates your outlook for inflation. And that's basically the way that fixed income markets operate in that investors are always trying to weigh the balance between the inflation in the market, inflation that they believe is going to be there for the next several years, and the yield that's being offered to them by securities today in the market. Now, look at what happened during the 2020-2021 era. Inflation was picking up in a really significant way, but yields were low. And so it caused 
investors to sell those treasuries and drive the yield up. Now the yield on 10-year treasuries has surpassed inflation using the CPI metric. And so now you might expect that some investors are willing to go into treasuries and lock in those yields. And based off of flow of fund data, we are seeing that investors are flocking toward treasuries right now and trying to lock in some of these yields. And it's not a coincidence that those flows started in earnest after the yield on treasuries surpassed the level of inflation year over year using the consumer price index. So again, thinking in terms of yield drivers, is CPI a driver of yield? Absolutely yes. And we can see that falling inflation should be at the margin an impulse to buying treasuries and locking in these yields. Remember again, the price and yield on treasuries move inversely. So as demand comes into treasuries and bids the price up, yields will fall. So summarizing this chart, if CPI is falling, it could have a pulling effect on yields lower. And that's assuming that in, uh, inflation sl- stays low. Moving on to the next part of our framework here, ISM. This is a data series that we've talked about. It is one of the oldest and most reliable economic data series in the United States. And it's something that you'll see us talk about and read us write about constantly at the Bitcoin layer. Why do we care so much about ISM? Because ISM is strongly related to GDP, which is strongly related to asset prices. And so we use ISM as a guiding light for us in our economic analysis. Now, ISM stands for the Institute of Supply Management. ISM asks a bunch of firms around the country, both in manufacturing and in services, how is business activity? How are your prices? How is your employment picture? And what are your new orders like um, amongst uh, many other questions? Now, we choose to use the ISM manufacturing survey because it has a much longer track record than services, as well as the fact that manufacturing, we believe, moves before services. So it's more of a leading indicator, whereas services can be a little bit of a lagging indicator from economic strength perspective. So in this chart, what I have for you is I have manufacturing from the ISM, but I have the prices subcomponent. So this is not the whole ISM survey. This is the prices component. And I've put CPI year over year change on the same chart. And what can you see here? First of all, that there is a relationship between ISM prices and the CPI. But look closely, look more closely at what happened in the last few years. You can see the orange line moves first. That means that ISM manufacturing firms and their responses on what they're seeing in prices does lead CPI. And so if we think about that the 10-year yield and CPI are related, well, that means the 10-year yield and ISM manufacturing prices are related. And if ISM manufacturing prices move before CPI, what should we be watching first, CPI or ISM prices? ISM prices because they're leading. And what is our goal here? 
Our goal is to assist you in asset allocation. When you have money, what should you be buying with it? Risky investments or more conservative investments? And in that binary decision, we are able to apply that to any group of assets. So if you're thinking stocks versus bonds, Bitcoin versus stocks, money market funds versus long-term treasuries, money market funds versus stocks, we have all these decisions to make at all times. What we're trying to explain to you is that if you make that decision binary, risky versus conservative, then you can use some of these metrics to help guide you in that decision. So getting back to this chart, ISM manufacturing prices leads CPI. And so we should be looking at this survey before we look at CPI to try to give us a sense of what's going on. So I told you and I explained here that ISM manufacturing prices is relevant. Now let's look at ISM manufacturing, broadly speaking, and the index and what we should be using it for. Now, it is our understanding based off of empirical data, based off regression analysis, that the equity market and ISM are correlated. And in what way would you expect the stock market to be doing well or poorly when the economy is doing well? It does well. So when ISM is strong, equity returns are strong. When ISM is weak, equity returns are weak. Now, this might seem like common sense, but it is very important to get that clear for everybody here is that, yes, the economy and the stock market are correlated, positively correlated. So when the economy is doing well, the stock market should do well. And look at this chart here. This is looking at the last 25 years or so of returns in purple versus ISM manufacturing in orange. And what can you see here? The S&P 500 year-over-year change tracks beautifully with ISM manufacturing. And if you look even closer, what do you see, guys? Look back in 2000. Which line moved first? Lower. Purple or orange? Purple. Which line moved lower in 2021, 2022? Purple or orange? Purple. Now, what does that mean? It means that the stock market senses out the changes in the economy and investors are selling quicker than the ISM manufacturing survey is able to print weakness in the economy. So can we use ISM to tell us how to invest in the stock market? It's almost as if you need to be understanding the ISM moves before they happen. And I know that that might sound frustrating to the viewer, but it is what professional investors are doing. Professional investors are actually trying to forecast the economy months before the changes happen, and they sell or buy S&P 500 or risky assets accordingly. So if you are an investor and you are looking at ISM and you're looking at other indicators that even lead the ISM, what you're trying to do is sniff out changes in the economy before they happen and before other investors can see a weakening ISM and sell their stocks. So now we've related 
The 10-year yield to CPI. We've related CPI to ISM manufacturing prices. Of course, ISM manufacturing prices and the headline survey ISM manufacturing are related. Now we've related ISM manufacturing to equity returns. So what are we saying here, guys? Everything is interrelated. Everything can be considered a driver of something else. But trying to get into the nuance on what is leading, what comes before, that is the tricky part, and that's what we're trying to show you here. What can give us the advanced look on what's going on? And oftentimes, the stock market itself is the best leading indicator that we have because you guys know I say price is truth all the time. The price is the truth, especially when it comes to the S&P 500. If the economy is weak, stocks will sniff it out early and even before a lot of these economic indicators can. So that's why we watch stocks so closely. And that's why we show you graphs like this to show you that, hey, we're looking at ISM and all these economic releases, but oftentimes you have to watch the stock market first to give us a sense of what investors actually think is happening in the economy. And forget GDP. GDP is only a confirmation of what ISM has told us sometimes months and months after it has happened. Now, let's go to the next chart. I want to switch up the pace a little bit and talk about ISM manufacturing, which is a PMI survey, PMI standing for Purchasing Managers Indices. Now, I want to show you the United States PMI using ISM, but then also show you what's going on in Scandinavia. Why are we talking about Scandinavia all of a sudden? Well, Norway and Sweden both have economic data sets that stretch back decades and correlate wonderfully with the U.S. manufacturing PMI. What does this tell us, guys? The economy is global. There is no such thing as a U.S. economy or a European economy or an Asian economy. They are all interrelated and strongly, strongly related. What happens in the U.S. happens in Europe and vice versa. They all go together. And I show you these Nordic countries here to show you that Scandinavia and the United States are operating within the same economic cycle. Okay, green is Norway, black is Sweden, and the orange is the United States here. What do we see here, guys? It's the same thing. And yes, one might lead the other, one might turn first, but what do we see right now? All three of these metrics are below 50, the, which is the expansion contraction line. 50 is the level at which respondents are saying neutral or no change. Below 50 means shrinking, contracting, lower new orders, lower hiring, lower economic activity. So both these Scandinavian countries are trading with a PMI below 50, U.S. as well, confirming that we do believe we are in the midst of a global contraction, even though labeling it a recession is not we, are, we cannot do that yet. And keep in mind, U.S. GDP, 4.9% growth, a far cry from negative GDP growth. So, But we're not fooled by 5% GDP looking at what's going on in the rest of the world with our economic indicators. We do believe a slowdown is already here despite a 5% 
growth in the United States latest GDP print. One more chart for you guys here relating ISM manufacturing to other economic indicators. This is the TBL economic cycle wayfinder. We've tweaked this, guys, over the last year plus as we try to get you the highest signal economic indicators. But a couple of these indicators that we've kept in here the whole time as our guiding lights, in addition to ISM manufacturing, University of Michigan sentiment, you see that here pictured in green, existing home sales in purple, you see the NFIB small business optimism index as well in gray silver here. All of these economic indicators are showing weakness in the economy. And importantly, none of them are showing strength. And that's something that we really have to keep in context when we think about 5% GDP in the United States. What is confirming it? Are we seeing spiking home sales? Existing home sales? No. Are we seeing spiking consumer confidence? No. Are we seeing spiking small business optimism? No. We're just not seeing that type of bullishness from the economic indicators all the way through. And it keeps us grounded in understanding where we are in the cycle. And remember, why do economic indicators matter? Because they line up with equity returns. And if you guys and your goal is asset allocation and outperforming your own expectations, not versus some, some benchmark, but trying to get the best returns possible, you need to be equipped with cycle analysis. Okay, let's take a break from ISM for a second and go back to 10-year yields. Let's talk about more drivers of 10-year yields. Does the Fed funds rate drive 10-year yields? Well, let's look at the chart here. Fed funds in black and 10-year yields in orange. Now, there is a relationship, but it's not as strong as some of these other indicators. But you do see here that the 10-year yield and the policy rate do tend to meet up right before recessions. And that's what we have going on here, guys. The 10-year yield and the policy rate are right around 5%. And if we are to expect the policy rate to come down, that should drag the 10-year yield down. When can the policy rate come down? In a recession and in rate cuts. We're warning you that that is coming, but we're also explaining to you that it is definitely not here. And by not here, I mean, yes, the Fed did not hike rates again today, but they're also not going to hike in December. They're not going to cut in December. They're not going to hike in the first couple weeks of 2024. They're not going to cut in the first couple weeks of 2024. So we have to expect the Fed to keep rates here for as long as they possibly can. And we'll watch 10-year yields to see, is there pressure on the Fed to actually start cutting rates because the 10-year yield is pulling that expected policy rate lower? Perhaps, and that's something we'll continue to watch. Now, why are yields higher than they have been in recent cycles? As well as why, the original question, why are we seeing a bear steepening right now instead of a bull steepening? Why are we seeing yields in the 10-year part of the curve rising going into an uninversion versus the previous two cycles where they were falling rapidly going into that? So I have a couple thoughts and answers for you as to why this might be happening. One is the relationship between 
onshore dollar deposits and treasury supply. Now the orange line is total treasury supply. Just crossed over 33 trillion and rising rapidly. The US government is out of control from a fiscal perspective. Out of control means that they are running trillion plus deficits every single year and they haven't had a surplus since the 90s and on the aggregate really haven't had a surplus for several several decades so the deficit on an annual basis is why the debt total increases year after year that number is 33 trillion but we cannot just look at 33 trillion dollars and say the u.s is falling apart and uh, has no credit worthiness left as they keep borrowing money. No, we have to put that $33 trillion into context. And it is what I tell my students. We have to be able to think in trillions if we are fixed income analysts. Why? Because the size of these markets is in the trillions. So to give yourself context, we have to think in terms of trillions. So what is the purple line in this chart? The purple line is onshore currency and deposits, okay? And that number is falling. It reached almost 30 trillion, it's fallen now to less than 27 trillion. And if you look at the relationship between these two numbers over the past few decades, what you see is that they track pretty closely. And what you can also see is that they have diverged materially in the past year or so. And the material divergence is now $7 trillion. So this mismatch of how much onshore money there is to balance how many treasuries are being issued, it means actually the onshore money doesn't support what is going on with the debt issuance. And that could be one of the drivers for higher yields, especially higher real yields. We know that the 10-year yield is made up of two components the inflation expectation component, and the real yield, the compensation. Now, the compensation has risen. Real yields are up to 2.5%. This is multi-decade highs. Why are real yields higher? Well, why are 10-year yields higher? Is it because of inflation expectation? No, it's because of real yields. And why are real yields higher? The compensation needs to be higher because there might not be the buyer base that there once was. So we have to keep the treasury supply in context of other numbers. What else do we need to think about from the treasury perspective in terms of the size? Well, let's look at the green line here. The green line is GDP. And so the black line is your GDP, debt to GDP ratio. Now, the debt to GDP ratio, the scale is on the left-hand side. The right-hand side is your trillions. Now, I want you to look at this shaded oval that I have in the middle of the chart. This is when the orange line passes the green line. This is when debt passes GDP. It's in the mid-2000-teens, okay? 2014-15 area. This is when debt to GDP rises above 100. That's that red line I have throughout the middle of your screen. That's drawn at the 100 level of debt to GDP. Now, debt to GDP has gone way above 100%, and that historically is a danger zone for countries. And that can be, and probably is, a contributor to higher treasury yields, especially in the real sector, right? Inflation expectations have risen, but they have cooled off. 
and the rise in treasury yields is largely due to a rise in real yields. So when we think about 33 trillion of treasury supply, we should think about GDP as well. And as long as the treasury supply is advancing faster than GDP is, it's a big problem for the US and it's a problem for real yields as well. But we should keep in mind that the debt to GDP has fallen actually over the last couple of years as the huge spike after the pandemic really skewed the numbers there for a couple of years. So we'll continue to watch this and keep treasury supply in context. Now, this is a fun chart that I want to show you guys. Treasury supply versus a couple other asset classes that you guys might be familiar with. Number one, the stock market. And number two, real estate wealth. So the stock market, let's focus on that first. That's the green line here relative to the treasury supply, which is in orange. This green line is the sum of the New York Stock Exchange market cap and the NASDAQ market cap. So American stocks, basically what you're looking at, approaching 50 trillion, actually past 50 trillion at the all-time highs and struggling to get back. We see a little bit of a dip here in the last couple months as stocks have not performed well after the August quarterly refunding announcement from the Treasury, which really got the crowding out effect uh, kicked into gear. So stocks, much larger than the Treasury supply, you can see that here, guys, and has met the Treasury supply a couple times in 2009, 2011, but has outpaced Treasury supply. What about real estate wealth? So the black line I have here for you, household and non-corporate real estate wealth. These are our homes and offices that are not owned by publicly traded companies. $66 trillion in real estate wealth in the United States. That's double the treasury supply. So again, important to keep in context what's going on. Maybe later we'll, I'll show you the ratio here of real estate to treasury supply. It's actually a fascinating ratio and has come down quite significantly uh, over, the, over the last several decades and probably something to do some more historic analysis on. Now, I want to compare treasuries to yet another measure, something that we keep in our framework all the time at the Bitcoin layer, part of my book, Layered Money and part of something that I think you guys also should be focusing on, the euro dollar system. Euro dollar system is another way of saying offshore dollars. Remember in a previous chart I showed you, onshore deposits versus treasury supply? Well, what about offshore dollars? Offshore dollars is an enormous sector of the financial system that we often forget about because a lot of our onshore data coming from the Fed gives us a great sense of what's going on in the U.S. banking system. The ECB shows us what's going on in the Euro banking system. But where do we get information about the dollar liabilities from banks outside of the United States? The best place to go to get that information is the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland. And we're using their data here to show you in black is offshore dollar claims denominated in U.S. dollars about 17 trillion, so about half the size of the treasury market. But the FX forwards and swaps market, which the BIS has written about as potentially an enormous risk in the financial system, 
something that we'll continue to research and cover for you guys at the Bitcoin layer. Make sure to check us out at thebitcoinlayer.com slash subscribe for all of our latest research. But this FX market, they are dollars and other currencies that are synthetically created by banks offshore to synth to basically assist in the flow of securities and trade around the world that is either denominated in dollars or denominated in other currency with a, a hedging risk in dollars. And so the Forex market abroad is a lot of synthetic money that we don't think about. And I want to show you that the number is actually in the multi-decatrillions and close to the treasury supply itself. And I took a number that is net dealer issued. And if you actually take the total notional amount, it's approaching this $100 trillion range. So again, $33 trillion seems like a lot of treasuries, but you have to put it in context of other components of the financial system. Now, let's keep going at what we can compare the treasury supply to and what are some of the drivers. The black line here, guys, is our treasury supply. The orange line, and it's shown on the left-hand side here of your y-axis, is the SOMA portfolio. This is the system open market account at the Federal Reserve. You guys might know it better as how many, how many bonds does the Fed own? What is the balance sheet on the asset side? And it is falling below $8 trillion towards $7 trillion right now. This is the period of quantitative tightening that we're in, guys. Now, we talk about our global macroeconomic and investing framework. What is a core, core component of our framework here at TBL and how we are approaching asset prices and asset returns? It is the permanent status of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet amidst what we are seeing in the markets. Now, the Fed used to control interest rates through changing the price of money and changing the supply of what's going on in the money markets. Now, in the last 15 years, the Fed toys with the level of reserves in the system as well as the price of money because the level of reserves in the system it sees has maybe even a greater impact than interest rates do. That means that the entire Fed hike, Fed cut dynamic might even be a sideshow. And that is what I want to emphasize here when we talk about our global macroeconomic framework. The component here that you must not forget is the Fed's balance sheet has an outsized impact on everything, right? We talk about how tens are related to PMI, are related to CPI, are related to equity returns. Well, the total size of the Fed's balance sheet, and let's get into this next chart, the size of the Fed's balance sheet lines up with the percentage, year-over-year percentage change in the S&P 500. So if equity returns are related to ISM, ISM is related to P CPI, CPI is related to 10-year yields, 10-year yields are related to Fed funds. We are saying here as well that the Fed balance sheet and equity returns are related. 
What it means here is that the Fed and its balance sheet have gotten involved in a serious way since 2009, and it is our belief that the size of the Fed's balance sheet and what it is doing with the amount of reserves in the system, called its ample reserves framework, is the primary or even absolutely by far and away the main driver of everything else going on in the economy and financial markets. That is a serious claim, but one that we back up with pictures like this, as well as our entire framework showing you just how influential the size of the Fed's balance sheet is over other asset classes. And going back one more time to the total debt versus the Fed's balance sheet, the divergence that you see right now with the orange line falling, despite the black line increasing, it means the Fed is not buying as many treasuries as it was. With the treasury supply increasing, this gap in this divergence is the crowding out effect, and it is a problem that we believe is contributing to higher real yields and potentially lower equity returns. Okay, guys, now I want to close with three charts here comparing returns. We talk about economic indicators, market indicators this whole time, but what do people care about? They care about returns. They care about their portfolios. So let's compare different asset classes over the last 15 years or so, as well as the last five years. So I started this chart on January 1st, 2008. Why? because I want to show you a post-2007 world in which the Fed has come with an enormous amount of moral hazard to to bail out every bankrupt bank across the planet over the last decade and a half. In black, you see the stock market. Three, almost four times the return, right? We're basing everything back at 100, going back to the beginning of 2008. So if you invest $100, January 1st, 2008, total return in the S&P 500, you're at almost $400. You've quadrupled your money. If you're in gold, you've made about two and a half times your money. If you're in your house, you've probably made 80% on your house. That's that 182 level, okay? CPI has gone from 100 to 146 over that time horizon. And if you had been invested in 10-year treasuries, you would be about break even with CPI. You would have made about 50% total return over that time horizon, even though you can see that the orange line has fallen significantly in the past few years in the bond bear market. You've still outpaced inflation here. So what does this tell you? It tells you that in the Fed's ample reserves framework in which they're constantly pressing the button to expand their balance sheet, you want to be in stocks. That is over the long-term time horizon. In the short, it can be very painful to be in stocks when the Fed's balance sheet is declining in size. That's something that we're seeing right now. So let's look at five years now. We can still, again, see that stocks have been the best performer over the last five years, and bonds have not kept pace with 100, let alone CPI, which is at about 120 here after five years. Houses, another 50% increase, but stocks have done well. Gold has also outperformed nicely. Now, what is the kicker, guys? You know we're called the Bitcoin layer. 
Why are we called the Bitcoin layer? Because we believe Bitcoin is entering a role where it'll play a central position in people's portfolios as well as the entire global monetary system going forward. So if we put Bitcoin in this group trailing five years, everything else starts to disappear in terms of returns. Bitcoin, you would have quintupled your money over the last five years. And we are looking at other returns that are just, you know, right around one to two X of the starting value. So again, Bitcoin outpacing every single asset class over five to 10 year time horizons. And that can be different over shorter time horizons. But we want to show you here, if our goal is investment returns, we need to be looking at just how much Bitcoin is outperforming other asset classes on longer term time horizons. This video has been sponsored by River. Make sure you guys check out river.com slash TBL for an exclusive offer and what we consider to be the best place for your Bitcoin exchange needs. I'm Nick Batia. This is the Bitcoin Layer. Thanks for sticking with us today for this global macroeconomic framework and how to approach asset allocation. We'll see you next time.